Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, Dr. Smith will be speaking to Dr. Naweed Chowdhury about his article, Baseline Mucus Cytokines Predict SNOT22 Results After Endoscopic Sinus Surgery. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Fiagon ENT Navigation. The new Fiagon Cube 4D provides easy-to-use navigation in a compact yet highly robust system. A new groundbreaking feature includes a touchless registration technique that utilizes point cloud technology to capture the entire surface of the patient's face during the registration process. With one click of a button, you can achieve superior registration accuracy all in under 20 seconds. Please visit www.fiagon.com to find out more about the new Cube 4D system and the latest groundbreaking navigation technology from Fiagon. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Smith, and today I'm very happy to be joined by Naweed Chowdhury from Nashville, Tennessee, and we'll be discussing his article, which is currently available online, entitled Baseline Mucus Cytokines Predict 22 Items Sinonasal Outcome Test Results After Endoscopic Sinus Surgery. Naweed, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me on, Tim. Really great to be here and chat about this paper. Yeah, it's a really interesting paper. Of course, in this day and age, as we have the first biologic that's been introduced, FDA-approved for the management of chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis, and even before the biologic era, we have been attempting to identify biomarkers to endotype patients, that is, describe how the pathophysiology is working in an individual patient through the molecular pathways that are occurring so that we can choose certain treatment targets that would make sense in that particular patient. And so it seems like that's exactly what you were going about here, particularly in regard to outcomes of sinus surgery and more specifically in regard to improvement in disease-specific quality of life after sinus surgery. So why don't you tell us about your thinking about the study, what got you interested in, and perhaps your rationale. That's a great place to start. So, I mean, I think um, when you think about the tools that we have to sort of predict outcomes, I guess prior to this current era of biologic uh, markers and whatnot, um, they're fairly limited. You know, I mean, I feel like there's kind of, uh, you know, look at CT scores and endoscopy scores and all these different metrics, and it's kind of been pretty um, difficult to sort of predict who actually benefits from surgery and post-op medical management and everything, and, and, and who doesn't. And, and I think that's a, certainly a practitioner. That's one of the major frustrations that we have uh, with um, selecting the appropriate treatments. And I think you know, if we thought it was complex already, um, it's about to get even more complex because yeah. you know, we've got some new tools that can really specifically target these markers, and we have a general sense, and in, in you know, where they're approved for patients with nasal polyposis and whatnot, but not exactly sure from that subgroup who will necessarily benefit and not. And so, I think we're kind of at a point where it's starting to become incumbent on us to try and figure out, you know, a better way. And I, and I think that was kind of 
what we were thinking with this study is to see if using these non-invasive mucus biomarkers, which we could collect pretty easily in, in the OR for sure and, and potentially even in the clinic, uh, is there a way to predict how people will do with sinus surgery and, and potentially uh, in the future even you know, with other sort of molecular therapeutic markers and, and really try to hone down who will do well with each one of these different yeah. therapeutic options that we have. Yeah, precision medicine. I mean, it's been our goal for for some time now. We've articulated it much better, I think, our goal of precision medicine in the last several years. But to your point, you know, historically we've looked at chronic rhinosinusitis as a disease that either has polyps or doesn't have polyps. And we used that as clinicians, we used that to help us inform patients how they might do with surgery or help predict how they might respond to surgery. And and what we found over the years is that even when we take a group of patients with chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis, there's a great deal of heterogeneity with regard to what's going on pathophysiologically in those patients. They can probably be subtyped or divided into much smaller groups where more specific mechanisms can be identified. And I think that the biologics which are currently being introduced are trying to take advantage of that so-called endotyping of the disease. Yes, yeah, no, I agree. And, and I think, you know, not to get too far ahead in terms of results of the study or whatnot, but I think one of the Real interesting findings that was uh, somewhat surprising to me, at least, was uh, when we looked at sort of the phenotype or the sort of polyp status, if you will, of, of yeah. patients and put it in the model, particularly the random forest model, which is kind of a machine learning algorithm. The model would actually work better if we didn't even consider the presence or absence of polyps. Hmm. I think it is fascinating result if, if it is something that's generalizable because it kind of goes to your point of how much value is there in just knowing polyp versus not polyp if we don't know the underlying mechanism? And it, yeah. It could be that a lot of the trouble that we have with treating these patients is because we have kind of learned or have taught ourselves that the CRS with polyps needs to be treated in X manner and, and CRS without polyps is treated in Y manner. And, and, and there's probably more granularity to that, and there's probably different things that we should be you know, doing to different subsets of patients with and without polyps. And yeah. I think some of the results of the study seem to sort of echo that point. Right, right. And you you really looked for specific biomarkers, let's call them. These were proteins that you can collect placing a sponge into the middle meatus in this particular case. For a couple of minutes, generally, these are placed. Like you, I've placed them in the operating room. I've placed them in the clinic as well, and they're even really well tolerated in the clinic. Uh, and so the sponge soaks up some of the mucus. You then spin that down, and then you can do a number of laboratory assays to determine what are the predominant biomarkers, uh, cytokines, interleukins, that are at play at least in the mucus. It's not necessarily exactly what's going on in the mucosa, the lining, but it's certainly going on in, in the mucus. Correct. 
correct. And what were you thinking? What was your hypothesis? Which biomarkers did you think would be the ones that would help us predict? Did you go into this with some hypothesis in mind? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of was thinking going in that some of the, the type 2 cytokines would be involved. I wasn't sure exactly which way it would go because certainly, you know, patients with nasal polyps tend to have at least longitudinally more propensity for recurrence and regrowth and can sometimes be more difficult to control. So I was thinking, you know, that we would find something interesting in one of the type 2 cytokines, generally IL-4, IL-5, 9, and 13, and, and we did find that with IL-5 really being a, or if not the most significant predictor of, of outcome uh, amongst the cytokines in the study. But interestingly enough, I mean, it seemed that in our uh, results that IL-5 was actually associated, higher IL-5 levels preoperatively were actually associated with better outcomes after surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so um, maybe a little bit contrary to what my initial hypothesis going in would have been, but uh, but I think kind of an interesting result and kind of goes to, you know, when you think about maybe why is this the case, you kind of start thinking about what is surgery actually doing in these patients and what is, you know, because we're following these patients longitudinally, you also have to consider what is the post-operative regimen that is also put on these patients because it's pretty rare these days to just do surgery and, and say goodbye to the patients. Um, you know, yeah. certainly, I know you do and, and, and I do we counsel these patients that this is a chronic disease and, and surgery is often the first step. I think often when we're doing these studies and we're looking at surgical outcomes, really it's surgical and post-operative medical management outcomes. Um, yeah. I think yeah. That's, a, that's a really big part of what's going on. And so yeah. Some of this may be that these biomarkers are more indicative of endotypes that are better treated with kind of the tools that we currently have available, things like pedesonide rinses after surgery and oral steroids and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and that might be kind of more what's going on behind the scenes. But Right, right. It's interesting because oftentimes we think, okay, let's compare surgery to some other form of therapy to determine the comparative effectiveness of the outcomes. And I was at a meeting at the NIH earlier this week where we were talking about how we manage patients with chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis in this new era of biologic medications. And the point was made that surgery really is not a standalone therapy. It is, in fact, surgery and then the post-operative, not just the perioperative, but the long-term post-operative medical therapy that is also utilized in conjunction with surgery. And that's an important point to make whenever we're doing comparative effectiveness uh, trials. Right, right. And and sort of, I think the, the interesting question, too, that I think it's out there and necessarily has been answered is sort of how, how do these you know, new biologic therapies sort of play into that paradigm? I mean, I think right now, in, in some cases, they're being sort of, I don't know if marketed is the right word, but they're being described maybe as as surgery alternatives, but maybe something that's used in conjunction with surgery or or maybe even, steal a term from the head and neck folks, maybe even like a neoadjuvant kind of therapy. Maybe you you put someone on on one of these medications, let them cool off, and that makes the surgery easier, and then they do better because you've reduced their inflammatory burden and they're less likely to have polyp reformation in their frontal outflow afterwards because you've kind of 
cool them off, so to speak, a little bit. But um, yeah. I think it's a really interesting time, I think, to be in our field. And I think it's, yeah. it's exciting as a, as a young uh, practitioner to kind of be in this era because I think we've got, uh, we're kind of opening the box and uh, there's a lot of tools and a lot of interesting stuff, I think, that's coming down the next decade or so. Yeah, I feel like we've been saying that and we've been living that in the field of rhinology for about 30 years now, or certainly 25 years, where we have this, the field, we've been very fortunate to be in this field because technology, innovations in technology that have just transformed the way we did the surgery, and then that allowed us to transform the way we thought about treatment of patients with this long-term disease, and now you introduce precision medicine concepts and introduce biologics, which there is a biologic now that is available that can be used in patients to block IL-5, which was your your best predictor for improvement in SNOT-22. And one of the interesting things I thought about your study is that IL-5 turned out to be the best predictor. When I look at the early clinical trials in the biologics, at least in treating patients with chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis, it seems like the IL-4, IL-13 blockers have superior results to the IL-5. It's early to say that. I know a lot of work still needs to be done, but that's been my general impression. So I was a little bit surprised that IL-4 and IL-13 didn't fall out as dramatically in your study as predictors. But on the other hand, you looked at all comers with chronic rhinosinusitis. You weren't specifically looking at chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis. Correct. Yeah, I think we were, we were looking at sort of this heterogeneous population of folks with chronic rhinosinusitis. So I think that's part of it. Um, you know, I think the other thing is... Um, uh, obviously, this is an observational study, and, and there's there's certainly limitations to that um, uh, methodology. Um, and, and I think one of those is um, there really is no causal inference that we can really make from this study, even though we've kind of used a lot of you know advanced statistical techniques and whatnot to to look at this. I think IL-5 may just be a marker of type 2 inflammation, and mm-hmm. maybe when you're actually treating type 2 inflammation, then knocking out 4 and 13 is actually what leads to sort of moderation of that inflammatory pathway, and IL-5 just happens to be the thing that is most present in the mucus, which is what we're collecting, and kind of talked about how the tissue levels may not necessarily be exactly the same as the mucus levels, so it could be that that's kind of what's going on. I I think just think the immunology of Chronic rhinosinusitis is so uh, so fascinating that you know, we look at say um, you know I think eosinophils for example are always the the bad guys that we always mm-hmm. look at and you know now you know, we always get the pathology report when we look at the number of eosinophils and and you know when it's super high that sounds alarm bells off in my head at least that you know we need to be pretty aggressive in post-op medical management but, but there's another recent paper where they um, yeah. You know, the, the Despremiprexol paper that Dr. Yeah. I think was yeah. the lead author on. And it's interesting to see that you could remove all of the eosinophils, <laughs> or almost all of them, and, and the patients really didn't get better. And so, again, I, I wonder, similar to... Noeed, that study kind of, that, that study kind of rocked my world a little yeah. bit, right? 
I yeah, mean, yeah. Uh, for the for the listeners, this is a study by Tanya Laidlaw. She's at Brigham and Women's, and it's in the Laryngoscope in 2019. I don't have the reference right offhand, but you can find it that way. But yeah, she more or less eliminated eosinophils from the equation, and that didn't really change a whole lot. And whereas for the last decade, certainly maybe practically two decades, we've been talking about the eosinophil like we're convinced that's the bad guy in all of this. Right. And so, I mean, in in this study, it may be something similar where, you know, IL-5 is a marker for something else. That's what we're seeing. That's what, when we do this assay, that's what's readily visible, just like when you do an H&E stain, the eosinophils just light up. But maybe the actual players that are important as therapeutic targets are actually more subtle or or maybe um, they're kind of hidden deep. Yeah, interesting. Now, a couple of the other biomarkers that showed some predictive ability, IL-2 and then tumor necrosis factor alpha, which sort of surprised me there, but you had a pretty good rationale in your discussion as to why you thought TNF-alpha, which is more commonly associated with rheumatologic disease, rheumatoid arthritis in particular, a lot of those biologics block TNF-alpha specifically, I think. I'm getting a little bit out of my scope here, but I think that's the case. Yeah, no, I think that was kind of one of the things we were talking about our pre-test hypotheses, and it was really interesting to see TNF-alpha kind of come out, certainly in the um, sleep outcomes, but even in the forest for overall SNOT-22 outcomes. And it was kind of one of those things where a lot of times when we're doing these cytokine studies, there's a lot that's not known, and so you kind of look at the results and you kind of think, well, okay, what's going on here? What is Mm. this data telling me? It's, It's kind of exploratory as well. And what was really interesting is is um, when I saw this TNF-alpha result in association with sleep outcomes, I kind of did a little digging into some of the sleep literature and see if this was reflected elsewhere. And there's actually this really robust literature in the sleep field where TNF-alpha is associated with poor sleep quality. Yeah. Folks who have high sort of baseline, just tonic levels of TNF-alpha tend to have worse sleep quality and and with people who like you mentioned with rheumatoid arthritis who are put on anti-TNF alpha inhibitors they have improvement in their sleep sleep quality so it's not something that I think we tend to think of in our field Uh, oftentimes we kind of think of sleep as a sort of secondary outcome of kind of more focused I think on the rhinologic symptoms and olfaction and that and if the sleep gets better that's a little extra bonus for sure but I, I think um, this finding maybe suggests that we're, we're doing more to affect sleep quality potentially with our uh, interventions than just you know letting them breathe better and relieving obstruction. There may be actually a physiologic basis for that. Um, yeah, I think is, is really uh, really cool, really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Jeremiah Alt at the University of Utah has had a particular interest in that, and I've done some collaborations with him, and it is amazing how, I mean, there's a sleep domain on the SNOT-22 instrument, and so if you can improve a patient's sleep, then you're going to likely improve their disease-specific quality of life as measured by the SNOT-22, but the impact of chronic rhinosinusitis on sleep and perhaps the impact of sleep 
or lack thereof on chronic rhinosinusitis is is a it's a fascinating link, and I think we're just in our infancy of of understanding how important that is. Yeah, I agree. IL two was the other one that showed some predictive ability, and that's not one that comes up often as we talk about chronic rhinosinusitis. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, IL two is kind of a interesting cytokine. It's essentially T-cell growth factor, and it has some effects on naive T-cells in particular, and increased IL-2 levels kind of help with the production of regulatory T-cells, which are often, or the absence of which, I guess, are implicated in a lot of autoimmune conditions. But really, there's not a lot of literature looking at IL-2 in the context of chronic rhinosinusitis. So I think one thing that was interesting is we did an analysis, I think this is also in IFAR, I think last year, where we looked at olfactory outcomes as measured, or, or olfactory function, rather, as measured by the SIT uh, test. And yeah. uh, IL-2 was noted to be a predictor of poor baseline olfaction in that group. So there's some, perhaps something there linking uh, mucus IL-2 levels to um, olfactory function. Hmm. And, and, and perhaps that olfactory dysfunction is then being translated into these poor disease-specific quality of life measures and then the, the worsening of that. The other thought is that it's perhaps a marker of chronic infection. IL-2 is generally mm-hmm. sort of produced in an acute infectious setting as the adaptive immune system is, is starting to ramp up to kind of rally the troops and rally the T-cells and try to get things going. So perhaps it's a marker of, of something like that, that maybe chronic infection, or maybe, maybe that's not the right word, but, but chronic inflammation is being signified by this IL-2 that, yeah. that, that, that that may be kind of playing a role. But I, I think it's a kind of an interesting finding, and I was really taken aback by, I guess, the magnitude and the consistency of it across all of the different domains we looked at and really not having a great explanation for why this is occurring other than just we've seen other studies and there have been some relationships. But certainly whereas with IL-5, we can kind of make this mechanistic case, it's not really the same with IL-2. So I think that's certainly a really potential area for, for further research as to why these patients don't do too well and what is this IL-2 really telling us about what's going on underneath the hood. Well, fascinating stuff, uh, for sure. Give us, what, what, what's the take-home message from this particular study? The take-home message is that, uh, you know, we can use these mucous cytokines most likely to hopefully usher in this era of precision medicine where we can identify patients who are likely to benefit from surgery. And I think I would, I would say that the results certainly are promising based on these results, but there's really a lot more work that we need to do in terms of yeah. really figuring out why things are the way they are. And certainly, I, I think I, I wouldn't want anyone to rush out and start putting everybody on a, you know, mepolizumab or something. Yeah, right, you know, right. Uh, based on these results, because I, I think there, it's definitely there's something real. There's real signal going on here. It's really yeah. telling us something about the pathophysiology of the disease, but you know what exactly that is and, and what area we should actually intervene at to yeah. make this change is still really, I think, to be determined.
Yeah, absolutely. I think we're just we're just scratching the surface, right? And of course what we try what we then do is we we start to grasp and think that we have complete understanding and control of all of this and we start to react and respond to it and I think we're going to have to allow this to evolve a bit and a lot more research work needs to be done before we can start really practicing precision medicine. But your work helps us get one step closer, Naweed, so thank you very much. I, I have one last question for you. You've probably noticed that David Petker and Amber Luong are also doing some guest hosting on the, the podcast as well. I think they're doing a great job. David is commonly asking folks trivia questions, I think. And so I was going to ask you a brief trivia question about David, actually, David Petker, who, who I know you know. But I don't know how well you know him. Yeah. But I'm going to ask you, what is David Petker's favorite movie? What is his favorite movie? Oh, my gosh. Any idea? All-time favorite. I don't know him that well. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I don't either because I, I might be wrong on what I'm what the answer is, but I'm going to give you what I think the answer is. Yeah, I don't know. Star Wars? But I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, he's – now, he's more of the – He's, you can tell from some of the trivia questions he asks on his, on the podcast, he's into kind of the goofy adult humor. I actually identify with his humor, and so does my eight-year-old son uh, identify with David's humor. So if you asked David what his favorite movie is and my eight-year-old son what his favorite movie is, they'd probably say the same, same, same level of sophistication there. Yeah. So his, I'm going to say his, I don't know, he'll, he might have to answer this on a future podcast. I think his favorite movie is Talladega Nights with oh, no. Will Ferrell. Yeah. <laughs> who I, I know, I'm pretty sure is one of his favorite comedians of all time. So oh, we'll no. let David, we'll let David adjudicate this in a future podcast. I'll, I'll be listening carefully to see if he has any comeback. But Naweed, thank you so much for your time today and, and for helping us to advance our field. It's great work, and like we said, scratching the surface, but we got to take it one step at a time. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of Dr. Smith and his guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.